literally everything we did ended up being disruptive. Not intentionally. The people who used to do it aren't going to be happy about that. That was the surgeon, of course. And the establishment has a conflict of interest on new stuff because it might obsolete it. And that's one of the challenges. We worked hard, actually, to try to work with the surgeons to produce a soft landing for them, if you will. All the lessons that have been learned in these adjacent fields. That's where the opportunity for great inventions is. It's the mashup. Welcome to the Sound of IR podcast, an SIR RFS initiative. I'm Sabash Goody. And I'm Steve Lazar. And we're your producers for this podcast. We hope to deliver impactful insight into the field while inspiring the next generation of interventional radiologists. This episode is part of our VIR Legend series, where you'll be hearing from some of the founders of IR. I'm your host, Eric Cyphers, a third year medical student and project lead for the Legend series. In this episode, Subash and I had the privilege to speak with Mr. John Abley. Mr. Abley is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and founder of Boston Scientific. So the first question I'd like to ask, you started out working at a small light fixture company in the Midwest and found your way to co-founding Boston Scientific. Can you take us through that early trajectory of your career? I went to a, a small college, Amherst College, and majored in physics and philosophy. I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go in, but the, the motto of the school was Terrassa Radium, light the earth. So I, that was a direction I was given, and I went to a lighting company that had a very unique type of lighting that could enable people to see better better resolution, better contrast. It was mostly in the green spectrum because our sensitivity to our eyes is much higher in green than it is in other wavelengths. In any case, it was really an experiment for me because I thought I was going to go to a physics graduate school and decided that was not my path. I didn't want to go to business school. I didn't want to go to law school. But The one thing I was concerned about is I was extraordinarily shy. And the one thing I couldn't stand was the idea of selling. So what do you do? It's like you're afraid of heights, you jump out of planes. So I decided to try out some selling to see if I could figure out what it was. And maybe I could do it in a way that wasn't so bad. And the lighting company was probably an unsuccessful experiment in one sense. The business wasn't that good. What was fascinating is everybody uses lighting. So that enabled me to explore all sorts of organizations, both businesses, academic things, and so forth, because they need lighting. And we had a novel tool for it. And in the process of doing that, I came across a little company that was in the medical business. I had been very sick when I was a kid, and I had said to myself, I am never going to go near a hospital again. But they had great gadgets, this little company that made things for hospitals. And I loved gadgets, and I loved the opportunity to experiment in many different types of novel scientific tools. Some of these tools were in the 
the chemical and biological area, things that would measure sodium, potassium, so forth, flame photometers. But this was when these things were being started. And then one of the things they did is they had a device that would measure temperature to a thousandth of a degree. This device, using the colligative properties of solutions, if you remember those from medical school, means you could also measure osmotic concentration because those are the four colligative properties. And it turns out that was novel at the time. It was basically organic chemistry that I was using here because we were measuring properties in solutions. And the result of all of this was that we had a device that was really valuable for the early days of developing ways of dealing with bad kidneys. The first dialysis was just going on. That had actually been a development in World War II. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. It's an extraordinary one. And we now had a tool that would measure the effectiveness of how the kidneys were working better than anything else. And as a result, I had to help educate the people on what it was. I taught doctors how to understand physics. And it was always something I remember in school that my colleagues who went to medical school, and a lot of them did from Amherst, by the way, weren't very good in physics. They hated physics. And I remembered that and said, I'll teach them physics in a way that's much better than the way they were taught in college. And I did that in much more practical physics. And that's how, over time, this little company grew. I ended up running this little company for an absent owner. And along the way, I came across some other incredible inventions. And one of them was a small inventor who had developed a device for a steerable catheter. And I was fascinated by it. It was used in radiology in a limited way. In fact, the person who came up with the request for a device like this was a gentleman named Maurice Simon, who was at Pitt Israel in, in Boston. And he wanted to cannulate the gallbladder, in effect, and was able to do so. Uh, today, that would you'd get a, a prize for that. Pretty difficult to do under x-ray, by the way. Uh, but anyway, they were able to do it. And that led to a company called Meditech. And Meditech later on became Boston Scientific. But the whole idea was we were going to develop technology that would lead to devices that would lead to procedures that would reduce risk, trauma, time of procedure and recovery time and cost. And I figured, you know, who could possibly be opposed to that? Well, obviously that was dumb of me because I discovered that (laughs) surgeons, although they weren't really opposed to that, but they weren't thinking of that. They were saying somebody outside of surgery who is not a board-certified surgeon is developing techniques that are going to have an impact on us. Therefore, we should control that. And they made life difficult, as often happens when people are inventing things. And as a result, I became as fascinated by the social and emotional barriers to invention as much as the technical barriers to invention, if you see what I'm saying. And that became what Boston Scientific was all about. Literally everything we did ended up being disruptive. Not not intentionally, it's just that if it really does 
shorten things and mean you need less complicated equipment in which to use it, then that possibility means there may be different people doing it. And therefore, the people who used to do it aren't going to be happy about that. That was the surgeon, of course. And it wasn't that we thought that interventional radiologists, first of all, they didn't exist at that point, was the god of the concept. But, and that was 1964, by the way, that that is his accomplishment was published in Life magazine and became a very, very important change agent for how people thought about intervention. And what happened was, in order to be an intervener, you need both surgical skills and, of course, you need the traditional clinical skills. And cardiologists, for example, were primarily diagnostic at that point, but in, obviously with the concept that a catheter could go in and not only diagnose the problem, but it could treat it as well. Uh, that was the whole concept of intervention literally throughout many procedures, GI, urology, and uh, interventional radiology, and uh, cardiology and more to come, if you will. So that, to me, was a fascinating opportunity to understand the organizational dynamic of how you develop not just a device but a procedure, where the procedure involves all sorts of assistive techniques. And in the case of interventional radiology, imaging was everything, and therefore, interventional imaging was key. And each time imaging got better, the resolution or the different modalities, it meant that it expanded the opportunities to do new techniques. And uh, very interesting because a lot of the pioneers in any of these interventional techniques, any of the specialties, was overseas rather than the U.S., it's kind of odd because we think of the U.S. as being very innovative. They were very innovative in terms of the devices, but the actual physicians who used them tended to be in, in the Orient or in, in Europe. And, or in one case, a very famous case, Australia, one of the, the doctors who discovered the reason for ulcers was in Perth, Australia. He came up with a new concept that it was an infection uh, that was novel at the time. And he couldn't get any of the professional societies to accept his presenting a paper. Uh, hard to believe. He was rejected in the U.S. and he was rejected in Europe. Wow. And 25 years later, he got the Nobel Prize. And, and he was actually welcomed to both the U.S. and Europe and, and China and so forth. But it was, it's fascinating because sometimes it does take that long for new concepts to be adopted. And the resistance from whether it's surgeons or what other specialty there may be, that's part of the voyage of what you've got to go through. And that criticism, of course, can be good in some ways. It forces you to explain more clearly, to do better data, to have, do more relevant trials. That's something that's always frustrated me is many clinical trials are less than worthless. They they are interpreted incorrectly and so forth. So having a respect for people who are really good at doing trial work was something that was very important to us as an organization. And I think as a result of intervention, we developed new types of trials. They were sort of partly surgical and, and partly more scientific, 
but when you get into the clinical side of them, you're dealing with assessments that are much fuzzier that I was more familiar with. So that's how yeah. I got into this area and in the changing side of the area, particularly right. the whole disruptive nature of these these things and recognizing that the education part was in many ways more important than the earlier technical part. That's just incredible that you were able to make that enormous leap from working in a light fixture company to eventually working with Meditech on all these medical devices like the steerable catheter. Nowadays, steerable catheter, steerable sheath, those are so well-liked by IRs for all sorts of difficult-to-access anatomy. Of course, you eventually co-founded Boston Scientific. And as you said, when you disrupt and create new devices, new ways of doing things, there's lots of politics to go along with that. Speaking of devices, you were involved in the development of so many life-saving and life-altering devices. But in particular, I want to touch on angioplasty. Um, How did you first hear about angioplasty? What was your role in pioneering the balloon? And how did the whole balloon concept come about? I knew Charlie Dotter. (laughs) And I had read that Life magazine article in 1964 in which he described his peripheral use of not a balloon catheter, but a tapered catheter. And you push the taper through the lesion and it moves to the side. You learn that in in moving snow around, things like that. And uh, that evolution was how you learn about the social dilemma. Charlie Daughter was a genius in technical things, but in fact, he called surgeons idiots and the fact that they, he was going to put them out of business. Not a good strategy to, to change a field. And in, in, in a way, when Andreas Grunzig came up with the concept of using a balloon rather than a tapered catheter, and by the way, he had tried the tapered catheter as well, he had a lot more science in the approach to understanding the problem. And what are the physics of expanding a lesion? And it's kind of interesting because I remember I got invited to a lot of you know educational programs at Harvard and Stanford and Hopkins and so forth. And so I would give a talk on the physics, but I would give my talk on physics was physics really for ninth graders, which turns out to be about matching up with the level of medical understanding. And... It was funny. I, mean, I'm, I taught them, for example, the fact that blood is very much like ketchup in terms of it. It's non-Newtonian, and when you agitate it or stir it, it gets less viscous. And that's why we're alive as humans, of course, because then when you have a narrowing, uh, the blood gets thinner in that narrowing because there's more agitation of it and the flow is maintained. But... Uh, explaining that and being on the circuit, so to speak, of those educators was a great opportunity for me to learn and understand what the level of understanding was, where the misunderstandings specifically. And if an awful lot of people don't get that, I had a one, one of the customers was a, a Harvard undergrad summa and medical school summa. And I had shown him an ultrasound wire that we'd put together to act as a possible ablator 
in angioplasty or as part of that process. And the first thing he did, he was excited about it, but the first thing he did was he stuck it in a dog. Because if you're a medical experimenter, that's what you do. You do experiments in dogs. And I said, what? This is the craziest thing. The first thing you want to do is turn it on and hold it and bend it and see what happens. This is the tinkerer mentality. It may not be strict science, but in fact, it's practical science. And learning behavior in any device is really important. You want to push it to fail. How does it fail? And why does that happen? Can you prevent it? Can you teach the user how to use it in a way that reduces the risk of failure? All these things are, I think, I thought they was kind of obvious. This is not Nobel winning science. This is kind of grade school science. This is what a lot of the education had to be. You have to, you know, understand all the different elements, but in terms of understanding the technology, being able to play with it, put it back, take it apart, put it back together again. And that's sometimes that's not what companies wanted to see. And I'm saying, if you're the company, you're going to increase the risk of an accident that could put you out of business. So this, to me, this is really a logical self-interest kind of move. And talking with audiences about complications that had happened that a lot of people were afraid to talk about. And that's why when one has complication conferences, they usually make sure that the audience is limited. They don't have too many lawyers there. And it was fascinating to watch. But at the end of the day, the whole concept of the live demonstration course, where people do courses truly live, no selection of videos that make you look great. The audience, as it turns out, the learning audience, who was much more interested in the mistakes than they were in the successful procedure. They want to see what, when something goes wrong, how do you respond to it? And I think of actually one of our first products that had a bit of a market anyway. It was a one of our steerable catheters. And it was used to remove retained biliary stones. And the magic of the catheter is you would put it in through the T-tube tract. So you have an easy, fairly short pathway into the gallbladder or into the common duct where the stone would be stuck. But now that you have a steerable catheter with the ability to put baskets through it and so forth, it became really easy to remove. And the interesting irony that everybody missed was the surgeons weren't mad at that interventional technique. Why? Because there was some of we beating with 10 to 15 percent incidence of retained stones. Sometimes they just couldn't get them, or sometimes they missed them, or whatever. But if there's a retained stone, and the patient comes back and tells you how the retained stone, and you tell them that they're going to have to go through the same procedure that they went through, which is pretty painful. You're not going to be very popular. Suddenly, we come along, and we offer them an alternative where it's a very modest procedure. They lie down on the table, they have the stone removed, and they get off the table. I mean, almost that simple. And we certainly had cases, particularly overseas, where that's exactly what happened. And uh, 
that was an interesting recognition again of the pathway to the acceptance of products. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes they tend to jump up very quickly and then the complications start to happen and they go back down. And sometimes that will kill the procedure. Biopsy needles is an example of that. There are lots of ways you can use them for both therapy and diagnostics. But if you don't use them right, you can create a problem with the needle. And it tends to be better if it's smaller and so forth. But understanding that and then developing techniques that use a formally criticized technique is going to slow things down a lot. And understanding then, how do you get around that problem? How do you get people to learn it for less risky techniques? Boston Scientific's sort of unique situation was we weren't just operating in one field, we were operating in many fields. And I remember being struck by the fact they don't talk to each other. They have very different style meetings and so forth. But we can learn from each of them and then learn from one of them and apply it to another and they'll think it's totally new. <laughs> and so it was fascinating to understand that collaboration there has always been slow. And I would argue that this is not only true in medicine, this is true academically broadly because you're rewarded as an individual, less as a group. Even though we talk about the importance of teamwork and have done some wonderful things to make it better, we're still a long way from being able to harness all the lessons that have been learned in these adjacent fields. And that's where the opportunity for great inventions is. It's the mashup, if you will, between different disciplines, between procedure concepts and techniques, and you can analyze it better and produce a much better result. It's amazing to hear about your approach to innovation and the way you think about these problems and also think about how physicians approach them and what gaps need to be filled. Along those lines of collaboration, what have been some of your favorite devices to develop collaboratively? And what are some of your favorite physicians that you've collaborated with through that process? I could probably give more examples of ones that weren't collaborative, but just for example, the guide wire. The guide wire was really developed by Bill Cook, certainly from a practical point of view. I think that was in the 60s. And the idea of a coil around a solid wire, therefore you can bend sharply without kinking it. And you can build a gradient degree of flexibility towards the end so you can get it into smaller holes. And I remember talking with a doctor at the RSNA in 85. Kind of think for a second what was going on at that point. First of all, interventional radiology had appeared as a society, hadn't become SIR yet, but, and remember initially it was cardiovascular, that was the total focus of the society. And the place people got together to talk about innovation was at RSNA. That was it. And it was the largest meeting of all the scientific meetings at that time. I've forgotten what the 25,000, whatever it was, usually in Chicago. And we had a, an educational exhibit. And we did talk about guide wires. But one of the doctors came up and said, the likelihood of a new guide wire being invented is over. We have <laughs> invented everything that can be invented. And I just remember being struck because I was 
well aware of the famous quotation from the person who actually developed the patent system, he had said the same thing. Two years after the patent system, he said, I think we've invented everything. And by and large, we've been doing that ever since. Bill Gates saying 650K is enough for any memory. Yeah, sure. And that humility to understand that there are going to be applications you haven't thought of yet, the key for you to learn about them is to create better networks and is something that is not only the obvious networks. A lot of the inventions in medicine come from outside of medicine and the use of radio frequency, for example, for ablation, for lots of things besides ablation, is interesting because it kept, it has kept being reinvented. But the principles are pretty much the same. So if you were to stop and say, what can I use this for? All the things you can think of, then you're going to have value created out of that process. Mr. Abley, you're full of lots of amazing stories from the early days of IR as a field. So many pearls and a lot of wisdom to be uh, gained from this. Do you have any advice for students who are trying to go into IR, especially those who are interested in device development and innovation? I guess I would suggest that don't confine yourself that far. There may be device parts of it, but certainly today you need to be a chemical engineer and a biological engineer, but not the way biological engineering, because I think a lot of people think of biological engineering is devices. No, biological engineering is engineering biology, (laughs) and there's a difference there. The role of devices to enhance the biological process is going to continue to grow. Already there's been a lot of mergering going on there. We've been involved in a lot of genetic research for a long time and therapy. And one of the neat things that the FDA was able to do is enable approval devices for very specific cases for which there are no alternatives. And those are valuable in helping a patient have an alternative, but just as important, their value to learn about how these new things behave in humans. And understanding that in many cases, the patient really ought to be a partner, not a patient. And I think a lot of doctors today, particularly the younger ones, tend to think that way. And sometimes they say, my patient will never understand that much. Well, if you assume that, you'll probably be right. But your job isn't to do that. Your job is to educate them, number one, so they have a little bit more confidence in what's going to happen to them and that they can be a partner in at least their own diagnostics, but including reading about what the options may be. A lot of doctors complain about patients who come with a bunch of printed out YouTube reports, whatever it might be, and a lot of that is terrible, absolutely, but there's some good stuff in there, and I would argue that's a vastly underutilized tool And I think just understanding science basically is is critical. Watching the evolution of the journals in interventional radiology was fascinating. The first ones were 
so embarrassing. They literally wouldn't pass grade school. And gradually, over time, they they got better and better, and the editors got better and better until it became truly more of a scientific journal. And understanding that in developing new things, articles are everything because they may not be the best. Sometimes there are great videos <laughs> in terms of understanding things as well. But an article has the discipline from prestigious journals, good peer-reviewed journals, the discipline there that is so critical to understanding the details. The problem, of course, with peer review is the peers who are doing the reviewing are the establishment. And the establishment has a conflict of interest on new stuff because it might obsolete it. And that's one of the challenges. We worked hard, actually, to try to work with the surgeons to produce a soft landing for them, if you will, so that they wouldn't get wiped out and tell them what's going to happen today in some of the things that might happen tomorrow, subject to inventions that you can actually predict when they're going to happen. And technical practicality is one thing. The business and the clinical practicality is another. And therefore, you need to have people who understand that. Just a little tidbit with regards to that. The first angioplasty in the United States was done in San Francisco. By that, I mean coronary. Dick Myler was the name of the cardiologist who had been at MGH at one point. But what he did is he hired a nurse psychologist to visit the patients before they came to the hospital. So what the nurse psychologist was doing was understanding the fact that you're not treating an individual, you're treating a family. <laughs> and that may be family or it may be friends or whatever it is, but they can strongly influence the attitude of the patient, which is obviously very valuable for how the procedure is going to go. But the fact that he hired a nurse psychologist, I think that was a first. I'd never come across that in the past. But in fact, it became very important. And uh, Barry Katzen, who uh, did some of the first the first live course, which is still going, I said, was in his hospital, and he thought he would do it in the operating room. Well, <laughs> that didn't last very long, uh, not enough room. So he then went to a theater in the hospital, which is exactly the way Grunzig did it in Switzerland, and videoed the case back and forth. But again, the video, almost like Zoom, the video is more effective in some ways than if you were there physically. Because the video, everybody can see what the cameras, plural, are seeing. And both sides can comment on it. The audience is invited to ask questions and so forth. I'm sorry, but that's actually genius, even though it's insanely obvious. And then the public understanding comes frequently from media. And oddly enough, angioplasty had a great accident, namely Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson, again, the late night comedian, in 1980, he had a either a stenosis or a total blockage in his leg, and he could walk only about 100 feet until it was painful. He couldn't walk anymore. But he was a fanatic golfer. He actually used to swing a virtual club when he started his program. And so 
He tells his audience of 20 million, whatever it was, he was going to have to step aside for a while, probably six to eight months, because I'm going to have an operation under my leg to fix this problem. And it takes a while to recover. So I may see you in six to eight months. But he was at Cedar sinai which is the Hospital for Celebrities in L.A., and it turns out interventional radiologist there, or the radiologist before he was interventional, was able to get his word in slideways. He'd made friends with a surgeon, and basically Johnny tells his audience that they're going to try something out on me. They're going to try a catheter with a balloon on it, and they're going to put it in before I get operated on, and if it doesn't work, then I'll just get operated on. But if it does work, I might be able to come back a little bit earlier. Two days later, he was back. And probably, and he tells the audience the whole story. And the phone of every cardiovascular surgeon in the United States started ringing off the hook. And I want one of those Carson things, uh, you know, exactly as you can imagine it be. But it had a profound effect. I just remember time and time again being at courses where there were surgeons present along with radiologists talking about angioplasty and the surgeon doing <laughs> the normal. Someday that may be useful, but it's very too experimental, doesn't work as well, and all of that, that, that sort of stuff hasn't been tested. Listen, these are the guys who didn't do the testing on their procedures, so come on, hypocrisy here. But anyway, once Carson came in, that became a powerful patient incentive. Mr. Avery, thank you so much for being here. It's really been an honor. It's absolutely fascinating to hear how you participated in the early days of IR and how through innovation and insight, you pioneered so many treatments and devices that made care less invasive and more accessible to people. And I think that wisdom is going to be amazing for students and trainees to hear now and for future generations. So thank you again. Well, thank you. And just rephrasing that a little bit, it's been a phenomenal partnership between so many physicians in, by the way, so many fields, because we made a point of getting different physicians to attend the live demonstration courses in cardiology. We would bring in the neurosurgeons, we would bring in uh, obviously interventional radiologists and so forth. And that was resisted if you were in a professional meeting. But at the live demonstration courses, you could do that. So it's sort of a reminder that you need to step outside from time to time to see how others are doing things. But anyway, thanks again. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your time, Mr. John Abley, co-founder of Boston Scientific. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Sound of IR. We'll see you next time.